thank you guys so much. It's uh, episode 15, Ohio versus the Wild West. And it is the season finale of season three of Ohio v. the World. Special thanks to all of our listeners. That we've The podcast has grown so much in the last year, um, you know, doubling our listenership, especially uh, lately. We really appreciate that. You guys getting the word out and sharing on your social medias and talking to your friends when they ask what you're listening to. Um, also, thanks again to all of our guests this season. You guys were all great. Um, and a special thanks to all the support we got from GoBus, the intracity bus service that serves uh, cities all over the state of Ohio. Uh, go to RideGoBus.com for their rates and routes. They were with us every step of the way this year and really appreciate the support from Matt and those guys down in southeast Ohio. Uh, and again, check out GoBus. Uh, very cool. So today we're going to be talking about two of the most famous Ohioans of the 19th century, two of the most famous Americans of the 19th century. We're talking about George Armstrong Custer, the general, and we're going to be talking about Annie Oakley, Little Miss Sureshot from Western Ohio and Dark County. The Wild West has always been fascinating to, to scholars and the imagination um, and really adding manifest destiny and the rugged Wild West has always been a part of the American lore. Uh, we'll go into that today with two of the biggest figures of the Wild West, uh, both from Ohio, Custer from New Rumley, and like we said, Annie Oakley from Dark County, the Greenville area, um, rose to be absolute superstars. We're talking about Custer, who's objectionable in almost every way, an Indian killer, um, and you know, a racist also, really, uh, and dies a terrible death at the Battle of Little Bighorn. We'll talk with Brady Kreitzer, one of our favorite podcasters from his podcast, Wartime, the television show Battlefield, Pennsylvania. We'll talk to him about his new project, uh, but Brady's going to talk to us about those years out west for Custer and how he met his end at the hand of the Cheyenne and the Lakota Sioux at the Battle of Little Bighorn. We'll sit down with Jason Lucas, attorney, to talk about a younger Custer, the hero of the Civil War, the boy general, becomes a general at 23 and really... Uh, you know, rockets to superstardom through his service in, in that war for the for the Northern Army, and we'll talk with our friend Bill Eichenberger, editor in chief of Echoes Magazine, the Ohio History Magazine, uh, produced by our friends at the Ohio History Connection, really cool magazine. Um, and Bill's going to talk to us about Annie Oakley, uh, she, her incredible story, how this poor girl from Nowheresville, Western Ohio, uh, becomes one of our most famous Ohioans. We'll talk about her journey around the world um, and her incredible talent. And like we said, he's Echoes Magazine's chief editor. uh, And Echoes is one of those perks you get of membership if you join the Ohio History Connection. Uh, We'll talk with Aaron Wingfield today about the other perks of membership. Uh, And also, we'll sit down for the third time, our only third-time guest uh, from the great Ohio rock band OAR, Jerry DePizzo, joins us. And he's going to talk about our beer of the episode, which is the Mighty Lager. It's a, a beer, uh, Amber Lager, uh, from Great Lakes Brewing Company. But it's actually a, a collaboration between his band, OAR, and Great Lakes. Uh, you can go to greatlakesbrewing.com or go to liveoar.com. Uh, learn about this 4.5% lager beer. We'll talk with Jerry about how this project came to be. The guy's got his own beer. The band's it's going to follow them on tour. Um, it's in commemoration of their new album coming out this summer, The Mighty, is our beer for the episode. Jerry stopped in, brought the beer, which doesn't come out until this June, 
uh, for a little sneak preview and, and really good stuff. And it was so good to have him. Our only three-time guest, I think I checked the records with uh, Jerry DePizzo from the Ohio rock band OAR. Jerry, how you doing? Good to see you, buddy. Good. We are opening a uh, Mighty Lager, the Mighty Lager from, from Great Lakes Brewing. Um, tell us about this. Like, how did how did this come about with Great Lakes? Yeah, well, first off, cheers, buddy. Mm-hmm. Cheers to you. Thank Thanks you. for it's having me stuff. on. It's good yeah. stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, a couple years ago, the boys and I, you know, we really wanted to start expanding what, you know, the brand of OAR could be. And we looked at beer as a, you know, a natural choice to look at that. You know, we have a uh, 20 plus year history of playing all over the country. Not one of those nights did the bar have a bad night. Right. Everybody, you know, uh, comes to OAR shows. It's the release. It's the break from their day, their long week. And uh, they let loose and they have a good time. And uh, most of the time they imbibe a fine beer while they're there. Right. So uh, we figured, uh, you know, <laughs> let's see if we can brand and bring in, you know, OAR with a great uh, with a great brewery. And so there was a pretty long search. This took about three years really to, to find the right partner for this. And we're thrilled that we, uh, we found Great Lakes and uh, they were willing to... Uh, join up with us, join forces, and make the Mighty Lager. So yeah, uh, we're thrilled. They're a great company. They do a lot of a really good stuff in the community in Northeast Ohio as well. Um, tell us, you know, when's it coming out? What's, uh, you know, it's going to follow you guys around on tour too, I read, right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, June 14th is going to, we're going to, uh, excuse me, June uh, 16th, I apologize. Uh, we're going to have our big press release, and it's going to give all the information about where the beer is going to be available on tour. But, yeah, it's going to follow us around on tour on a bunch of our tour dates, uh, it's going to be available in Cleveland at Great Lakes Brewery. That's the first it's going to be available on nice. June 11th. It's going to be at the brewery. Uh, in, 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 in Ohio the City shop. there, yeah. Yep. And then uh, uh, an exclusive here for Ohio V the World. Uh, it's going to be available at uh, Giant Eagle Marketplaces here in the Columbus Columbus area starting on June 17th. Oh, nice. It's, we got one like a mile down the road That's here. right. So if you stop in over at Giant Eagle Marketplaces, uh, you could pick up the Mighty Lager there. That's awesome. So, and you guys are playing, I think, three Ohio shows this summer? We are. We're going to be in uh, Toledo, we're going to be in Dayton, and we're also going to be uh, at one of our favorite stops over in uh, Cleveland, June 25th at uh, Nautica. So, we're thrilled. Oh, it's to a be great. There. the outdoor downtown amphitheater. It's a great spot. It's one of our faves. Um, so, as far as like what kind of beer is it? You know, I'm tasting it. Obviously, it's like a, a lighter lager, but just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, we wanted it to be a very drinkable beer. We wanted it to be a beer for everybody, uh, you know, a tailgating beer. Sure. So, you know, the ABV is 4.6%. So, uh, you know, it's not a very heavy beer. Uh, it's going to come in 16 ounce cans, 16 ounce uh, cans, four packs. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's really meant to be enjoyed, uh, you know. A day beer, out with friends, having a good time, crack it open, and uh, enjoy some music. Or in the parking lot before an OAR show, right? Sounds like a good idea. Um, tell us, just where can we find it online? Any, any more information on your guys' website? Absolutely. Yeah, go to liveoar.com slash themightylogger. And if you sign up on the email list there, we'll give you all the details about uh, where the beer is going to be available, uh, where and when's of, uh, of the Mighty Logger. Beautiful, man. Cheers. Cheers, buddy. Thanks, thanks. for having me. So thanks to Jerry. Uh, this summer... This is our last episode. We're going to be back in August. Uh, looks like we might be doing a live season premiere episode in August, uh, but we're going to be keeping real busy. We've got to start reaching out to our guests, picking these next batch of episodes. Uh, we've got a baby. Me, me and Miss Ohio V, the world, have our first child on the way uh, later this summer. Uh, we've got an offer from a publisher to write a book about Ohio history that we're 
definitely seriously considering. Um, and so that's really exciting. We've been talking with the publisher about that and, and what that might look like. So a lot going on um, in summer of 2019. We'll be gone for a couple of months and we'll be right back uh, with a new season. Also, you can vote for us. The Columbus Podcast Awards have nominated us for one of their podcasts of the year. Uh, you can go to columbuspodcastawards.com. Uh, and again, look us up. You can start voting next week um, in, in early May for that. I think May 1st. So we'll post more about that on our social media and all that good stuff. Uh, without further ado, this is going to be one of our longest episodes. So uh, we really appreciate you guys listening this season. If you have show ideas for next year, hit us up at ohioviewtheworld at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff. Uh, and we'll have plenty of things we're rolling out this summer. So without further ado, we're going to head out west. And we're going to talk about George Custer and the story of Annie Oakley. It's episode 15 Ohio vs. the Wild West. The subject of the first part of today's show is George Armstrong Custer. We're not going to sugarcoat it. He was not a great guy. He was a military genius, incredibly brave, um, and a man of his times. But looking back on his views and what he did, um, especially in his conflicts with the Indians, he's incredibly, incredibly difficult to defend. And we won't defend him. We're also not going to hide from our history. George Armstrong Custer is one of the most famous people from Ohio. His long, curly, blonde, flowing locks were known across the country and really across the world. There's so many important things in Ohio and American history that he was a part of. We want to explore those and really explore why did he become so incredibly popular. Maybe the most popular person from Ohio at the time of his death in 1876. The Custer was born in a, in a log cabin, a small town, a place called New Rumley, Ohio. Uh, it's, it's about 30 miles west of Steubenville, eastern Ohio, slightly east-northeast. Um, and he's born in 1839 in New Rumley. His great uncle laid out that little town um, as, as his family came from Maryland. Our first guest, we talked to Jason Lucas about his early years, and we talked about New Rumley. Jason's from that area. He's from Belmont County, Ohio. Um, and we talked to him about young Custer. So Custer was born in a log cabin in New Rumley, Ohio, which is in Harrison County. It's in the northern part of Harrison County, Ohio, on the eastern side of the state. Uh, he lived several months in a Monroe, Michigan, but Emanuel Custer, his father, a noted Jacksonian Democrat, moved him back to New Rumley. And when he was nine years old, Emanuel Custer apprenticed him to a furniture maker, a guy named Joseph Hunter in Caddis, um, because Emanuel Custer believed in individualism making your own way through the world with your own hands and your own skill, things of that nature. There was an importance to being a self-made man. What, uh, like what area of the state is New Rumley? I, I've been out there once. I went, I went and saw the statue out there. So New Rumley is in northern Harrison County, which is on the eastern part of the state in Ohio, uh, on the way from Caddis to Carroll. He was a teacher for three years in Caddis, first at a public school and then a private school. 
he taught he taught in a one room schoolhouse in in Caddis. Later on, as he's older, after he'd already left and was serving in the Civil War, his family actually moved to Wood County, Ohio. Jason tells us a, a cool little story. He's going around with a girl named Mary Jane Holland um, when he's a teacher following uh, before he goes to West Point. And Jason tells the story that maybe his appointment to West Point from a Republican, it's very weird that a Republican would nominate uh, a kid from a you know an outspokenly Democratic family, but maybe had a little more to it than just his really good essay, a nomination essay that he wrote to Congressman Bingham. So John Bingham was a noted Republican. He was a congressman actually from Harrison County, lived in Caddis, and he went on to author most of the 14th Amendment, which is pretty neat. Caddis isn't that big of a place. But Bingham was impressed with Custer's sincerity when he wrote to be appointed to West Point and he wanted to meet him. Of course, for Custer, it was a way out because even now Custer's thinking I will get paid $28 a month and I will be an adventurer and I'll leave Harrison County behind. But it was weird at the time for a noted Republican to appoint the son of Jacksonian Democrats to anything, much less West Point. The official story is that Bingham was impressed with his sincerity. But there's another story, a seedier story, if you will. A guy named Holland in Harrison County was a, a strong supporter of the Republican Party. And Holland had a daughter who was 15 at the time who was very sweet on Mr. Custer. And they may or may not have been caught kissing or whatnot. No one really knows. But Holland allegedly put so much pressure on Bingham mm -hmm. through the Republicans that Bingham appointed Custer to get him out of Harrison County. And away from his daughter. And away from the daughter. Custer gets to West Point in 1857. It's before the war starts. It's a five-year program back then. He would be rushed through, and his whole class would be rushed through in four, and some even in three years, uh, to become part of the of the army. Service was needed. Men were needed. Officers were needed that badly. We talked to Jason about what kind of cadet he was, because he would finish last in his class, 34th out of 34. Um, it's you know crazy that a guy who'd finished last in his class would become one of the youngest generals in American military history and one of our most famous officers. So Custer finished 34th in his class out of 34. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because that, that number's a little tricky. It, that class started with 108 and it was cut to 64 and only 34 graduated. So yes, he finished 34th out of 34, but he did finish. What kind of cadet was he? Terrible, in one <laughs> word. Uh, <laughs> He had 790 demerits at the end of his term. He barely scraped by. Interestingly enough, though, with his demerits, you were allowed 100 demerits in a six-month period. Several times he racked up over 90 in the first three months and then was a perfect example of a cadet in the last three months, <laughs> which, which showed some self-restraint and an ability to buckle down when he had to. But he decided early on that he was going to perform to his peers. He was going to be the leader of his peer group. He didn't really cater to the officers or even the cadet officers. He said one time that you can either be the head of the class or the foot of the class, and he was concerned with giving the class a solid foundation. Following graduation, Custer faces a court-martial. His career is nearly derailed before it starts, and Jason, we had to cut it for time, but tells us all about that court-martial. Basically, two cadets under his leadership got into a fight, Instead of breaking it up, he encouraged him and let them fight it out. Uh, he admitted guilt. He was censured, but not uh, removed. And because, again, the war had started. 
1861. It's the spring of 1861. And Custer is the last place in his class, and he's the last person to get out of West Point. He travels uh, to Washington, D.C. We talked to Jason about how Custer, with a chance meeting with Winfield Scott, General Scott, who was the commander of all the armies of the U.S. Army at the time the war started, gives him a mission to go find General McDowell, the head of the, of the Army of, of the Potomac at that point. And really how Custer finds himself in the Battle of Bull Run, in the, right in smack dab in the middle of the Civil War. So he gets to Washington, D.C., and he reports to the adjunct general's office. As the adjunct general staff officer is writing out his orders, he suddenly asked if he wants to meet General Scott, who's sitting in the office. He says, absolutely, I'd love to meet him. He goes into Scott's office, and Scott says, young man, what do you want to do? And Custer says, well, I want to be where the action is, which is a telling answer many times a cadet that graduates last is going to be placed in a training regiment or some sort of reserve role. So Winfield Scott says, that's great. Go find a horse. I have a series of dispatches to send to McDowell. Again, this is the first and second examples of what you see he referred to as Custer luck. Yeah, he Custer's called it Custer's luck. luck. Yeah. First example was probably not getting into more trouble with the court-martial. The second example is walking into the adjunct general's office and Winfield Scott sitting there. So, And he finds a horse, which took him hours because D.C. at the time was completely wiped out of any and all horses, guns, etc. Finds a horse, goes to the front. So that was on July 19th. He gets to McDowell's on July 20th with orders from Winfield Scott. Just in time to see the first battle of Bull Run. So many books, so much scholarship done on General Custer throughout the last 150 years. Um, really a book that we, one of the books we read and, and our guest Jason Lucas also recommended. It's called Custer's Trials by T.J. Stiles. Really good book. Uh, but he talks about an episode I never knew about. Never even knew this existed. That the Northern Army was using hot air balloons uh, to spy uh, on the enemy, doing aerial reconnaissance. And Custer is one of those first people, really one of the first people to fly. In 1862, during the uh, the Overland Campaign, the Virginia Campaign on the peninsula, um, he is with General McClellan's forces, but he's spying on the the Confederates in Virginia from the air. Pretty cool story. One of the first people, like I said, I think one of the first people to fly. We talk about uh, General Custer in the balloons. A guy named Thaddeus Lowe was named Chief Aeronaut of the Balloon Corps for Abraham Lincoln. And Lowe had this idea that he was going to fly a hot air balloon from Cincinnati to Washington, D.C. and land on the front of the White House lawn to grant his balloons to Mr. Lincoln to help win the war. And Lincoln is taken a little bit with this idea of the Balloon Corps. So Custer served what was called, with what was called the topographical engineers. Um, the peninsula at the time was blind. They had useless maps. They, they were no good. They didn't really know the terrain. Custer was put out front to map and scout this, partly because he finished last in his class and he had no choice on to where he went. He was scouting ahead to make maps. Well, part of the observation that they needed were these aerial maps. They created the first balloon corps, which were actually tethered hydrogen balloons mm -hmm. on a line that went up to about a thousand feet and, and the 
The story goes that Custer's first flight, he cowered in the basket, afraid to look out over the edge. He asked Lowe, are these safe? And Lowe starts jumping up and down in the balloon. <laughs> uh, that was the last time he asked. But it was interesting. They weren't very accurate during the day. Custer had a lot of trouble seeing through the tree line to the Confederate camp. So he decided to go at night. Well, the Confederates hid their fires and they put them out at night. And that wasn't very accurate either. So finally he figured out to go in the morning when they were cooking their breakfast. And he got a pretty accurate count from going up in the morning. Now, later on, Lincoln just actually disbanded the balloon corps after a balloon snapped from this tether and flew over the enemy lines. And it got to be a little bit of a debacle. With General McClellan, Custer, you know, he becomes part of his inner circle and is shooting up the ranks of, of, of the U.S. Army. We talked to Jason just about you know, the boy general, General Custer, who becomes a general at the age of 23 years old. He was a great, great leader of men, leading his peers. He always led from the front. Uh, he was actually named general five days before getting The day he was named general, he suddenly had a velveteen double-breasted <laughs> coat, which you only could be a general to wear a double-breasted coat. Many people think he traveled with the coat in anticipation of the day he made general. He had a sailor shirt, a red handkerchief around his neck, and golden spurs. And he was going to dress the part of that leader, of that general. Now, some people see flamboyance, but I actually see a guided tactical approach to this because he was a leader of cavalry. He had to draw people to him in the battle. They had to see and hear him. They weren't going to follow someone who was back in the tent or leading from the rear or scared to make a statement. He was always going to be in front and he was always going to lead from the front, which inspired, greatly inspired his men. That's one reason he, he was a great leader. Another reason is he had an impeccable sense of timing. He would get gut instincts and hold back. Uh, one reason he later feuded with Kilpatrick was because Kilpatrick stumbled into an ambush. Uh, that, Custer that, held back. That he was supposed to be involved in, yeah. He ordered Custer to go in. Custer held back because he had this gut instinct. He would often time his charges to when he anticipated would be the best time to attack, not when he was told. And he developed this sense of timing a little bit at West Point, similar to the demerit story. He knew when to press and when to pull back. And it, it's a natural thing. It, it couldn't really be taught. Custer's such a great cavalry commander. He's leading the Michigan Volunteers uh, during the war. And you really can't talk about the war, the Civil War, without talking about Gettysburg. And Custer was there, and he played a major role. Uh, staving off a, an attack from Jeb Stewart, trusting his instincts and really making his mark. He became a general, I don't know, like a week before. But the most famous battle in American history, the Battle of Gettysburg, Custer was there July 3rd, July 1st through July 3rd, 1863. Custer had been a general for five whole days when Gettysburg happened. Uh, a gentleman named General Gregg, was ordered to go bring Custer to the left side of the line. Pleasanton wanted Custer on the other side of the line. But like we talked about with timing, Custer thought that something was up, and so did Greg. And Greg asked Custer how he would feel about staying on the right side of the line. Custer 
thought it was prudent to stay on the right side of the line. He couldn't explain why, but he saw some unnatural movements. He'd heard some rumblings about maybe there being cavalry trying to attack that red side. And totally unbeknownst to Custer, Lee decided to attack the middle of the Union line with infantry and send Jeb Stuart and his famous cavalry around the backside to ambush the infantry as they retreated. The only line of defense was Custer's fifth. And he stayed on that right side. And it's important because Greg gave him the option. Greg couldn't order him to disobey a direct command from Pleasanton. But Custer decided it was worthwhile. And he stayed there. And they held off and split that cavalry that was circling around the back. Historians don't know how this would have shaken out. But they do know that the battle would have been fought completely differently if Jeb Stewart said you're back to Robert E. Lee's famous cavalry commander, Jeb Stuart. It's Custer and his men who would kill Stuart, a huge boon to northern morale in 1864. That's the Battle of, of Yellow Tavern. We talked to Jason just about how Custer made his name. He was always in the headlines. It was always good for a quote, um, and not just because he was, you know, such a great uh, media darling, but also because the guy won. He took chances, and he was a hero. We talk with with Jason about the Battle of Yellow Tavern, the death of Jeb Stewart, the Confederacy, and also the Battle of Trevelyan Station, known as Custer's First Stand. Turns out that soldier was Jeb Stewart. Jeb Stewart died, and he said, I'd rather be killed than be whipped. Those were his last words. It was a stunning loss to the Confederacy. They were, it, it really took the wind out of their sails because Lee had lost one of his best generals. The cavalry, the Southern cavalry was famous for its effectiveness. And really they had harassed the Union for years. And it was a stunning win for the Union in turn. They never expected to be able to get to Jeb Stewart. And it was a real turning point in both the morale and the tactics of the Civil War. Remember, this is May 11th, 1864. There's an election coming. The Union needs some good press. And this provides it, along with what's called the Battle of Trevelyan Station uh, the next month, where or Custer's first stand, as it sometimes is referred to. Custer's surrounded. He, he really makes a couple mistakes at Trevelyan Station. He, he attacks a baggage train instead of staying with his battle plan. And also, he's surprised by the enemy. Custer's not surprised very often in war, and especially in the Civil War. And the enemy pops up where he didn't expect them. He really struggled to calculate where they'd be, and they surround him at this baggage train. It was a sure defeat, but according to many noted historians and letter writing at the time, Custer fought for three hours. He was here, there, he was everywhere shouting, come on, you worthless Wolverines, at his troops at the time, the Michigan Cavalry. And he held off the Confederacy long enough for Sheridan to arrive with reinforcements, and they actually turned that loss into a win. More important than that was the publicity that came with it. On April 9th, 1865, Custer received one of the first surrenders of the Confederate Army. He's at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia, when Robert E. Lee surrendered to General Grant. The war was over. Custer was there. He actually got the writing desk, uh, General Sheridan, also in Ohio, and sent the desk back where the terms were written out by General Grant. 
um, and mailed that back to his wife. Custer got married during the war to the beautiful Libby Bacon uh, from Michigan. Uh, Libby would go on to really share Custer's legacy after his death. She lived for so many years after his death. But a beautiful woman who um, you know, really is a major part of the story that we're not able to get into due to time concerns. Uh, but she gets that desk mailed back to her and was one of her prized possessions. We talk about the Confederates finally giving up in 1865 at Appomattox Courthouse. April 9th of 1865. So under a flag of, of truce, Custer meets Longstreet in the middle of the road. And Custer says, in the name of General Grant, I demand an unconditional surrender of your army. And Longstreet says, the army's not mine to give you, nor do I think that you can demand that. And Custer <laughs> realizes he's majorly overstepped his authority. <laughs> but he actually was at Appomattox when Grant and Lee sat down and declared that end of the Civil War, a, a great day. He ends up with the writing desk that Sheridan gives to Libby Custer uh, that that was hammered out. Thanks for listening to Ohio v. The World. Every episode this season, we will bring you an Ohio History Connection Minute that is highlight the work being done to spark discovery of Ohio's stories. The Ohio History Connection for only the Ohio Historical Society preserves and shares the history of the state of Ohio. In each episode, we'll talk with an employee of the OHC or someone from the over 50 sites we manage across the Buckeye State. I urge you to visit our museum, the Ohio History Center in Columbus, and become a member. Go to ohiohistory.org slash join. So thanks for listening. Hope to see you at the History Center this year, and go to ohiohistory.org slash join for membership info. We'll get back into the Custer story here in a minute, but today on the Ohio History Connection Minute, we're talking to Aaron Wingfield about all the different ways we keep asking you to, to sign up for a membership. Go to ohiohistory.org slash join. We'll talk to Aaron. What does it mean to be a member? There's five different levels. What do you get? What are the perks? Um, and again, this year with the new our new Ohio Champion of Sports exhibit, uh, the Ohio Village will be opening here. Uh, there's so much to do there during the summer. If you've got kids, grandkids, all that good stuff. And memberships are shockingly cheap. I mean, I got my first one for $45. Aaron's going to talk me into, into upgrading because there's so many better options. But we talked to Aaron Wingfield from the Ohio History Connection about how membership has its privileges. Well, we have quite a few ways to become a member. We like to make it as easy as possible. You can, first and foremost, visit one of our 58 sites. Most of our sites have admission desks where you can purchase a membership right there as during your visit, especially at the Ohio History Center in Columbus. That's the easiest. You can also go online at ohiohistory.org join and see all of our membership offerings there. Or you can give us a call in the membership office at 800-686-1545, and we can take care of that over the phone for you. Um, how much does it cost to be a member, and what do you get with, with that membership? We have five levels of membership. Entry-level membership is an individual membership, which is actually an individual plus a guest, and that's just $45. And you would receive a membership card for you, and then you could bring any guest you wanted. And that gets you free admission to all, free general admission to all 58 of our sites. It gets... Echoes Magazine, which is our fabulous member Love magazine. Love Echoes Magazine. Big it, fan, big fan. Yes, it's so fun. We just did a big redesign for that about a year ago, and so it's a really robust publication now that has a section about events and activities across the state that you can um, get access to with your membership, and then it also has some really great articles about Ohio history. Yeah. And it comes out every other month. 
Um, so that's our basic level. Then we also have a new category as of about this time last year called a duo membership. And that's for our young professionals, our retirees who, you know, they might, two people in a household, they might both want their own card so they can travel together or separately, um, but they don't really care about benefits to bring guests or bring their grandchildren or their children. Gotcha. And that's $50. So it's just a little bit of extra money for that extra card. Um, our household membership is probably our most popular membership. It's two adults in the household and you each get a card so you can travel together or separately. And then it also covers all of the children or grandchildren that are part of your family age 18 and under. Okay, well, yeah. So that's a really great value. That level of membership is $65. It can cover as many children or grandchildren as you have. So Mm -hmm. it really can pay for itself very quickly. Um, two visits, sometimes less, depending on the number of people in your home. Um, and then the next level get, is popular for people who like to travel in groups. It's our plus level membership. So it's the household benefits, plus you can bring two additional guests of any age anytime you come. So we see that a lot of times with families. You know, mom and dad get cards, they have their kids, but maybe they like to bring their grandparents with them. Or maybe their kids like to bring friends when they travel around the state. So that benefit covers those extra guests. And that's $85. And the last membership is our really best value because it is just packed full of benefits. It's $145. It covers two named members, all kids 18 and under, children or grandchildren that are part of your household, and two additional guests. But then it also includes a Smithsonian affiliate membership. So you can choose either Smithsonian Magazine or Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine. It includes a genealogy workshop for one person in your membership. It includes free admission to our signature events at Ohio at Ohio Village and the Ohio History Center. So All Hallows Eve, Dickens of a Christmas, and Night at the Museum, which are all very popular events at Ohio Village. It's free admission to all of those. Uh, or other levels of membership, those events are just discounted admission for members. And it also includes our really, really cool reciprocal program, which is the North American Reciprocal Museum program. And that gets you usually free, sometimes reduced, but usually free admission to about 800 museums across the country. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So I've got to get, I've got to upgrade my membership. Yes, I can help you with that. All right, good. What's the best way, again, just the best ways to sign up to to become a member at at the Ohio History Connection? The best way is to go to ohiohistory.org slash join or visit one of our 58 sites to join while during your visit and or give us a call at 800-686-1545. All right, thanks, Erin. Thank you. Thanks again to Erin Wingfield for joining us. Uh, and get out there at ohiohistory.org slash join uh, and become a member today. 58 sites you can go to. Uh, the new Ohio Champion of Sports exhibit that I really enjoy at the Ohio History Center. So much going on there, um, and it's really good stuff. So thanks again to Aaron for coming on, uh, and thanks to the Ohio History Connection for all they do for to promote Ohio's stories. So we get back into our George Armstrong Custer story here. We sit down now with Brady Kreitzer. He was on an episode last season talking about Tecumseh. Uh, he's a professor in, in Pennsylvania and a the host of, I found him from a show I used to listen to called Wartime his first podcast, uh, and then he was the television host on Pennsylvania Public Television of Battlefield, Pennsylvania, which is entering its fifth season, Um, and also now is the host of 
a podcast called Dispatches. It's the podcast from the Journal of the American Revolution. Go to allthingsliberty.com. Uh, but Brady is so uh, so great to join us and, and to talk about George Armstrong Custer. He's got a great episode about the Battle of Little Bighorn on his wartime podcast that you should go listen to. Um, but we talked to him first about why was Custer so popular? The flowing blonde hair, uh, the huge wins, and, and he was a media darling like we talked about. But why was he this popular? You have to remember in the in the 19th century, America, you know, is, is very much the way it is today in that we gravitate toward big ideas and huge personalities. Uh, you know, the difference was, though, in, in 1865, there was no Avengers movie coming out. Uh, there's no comic book craze or uh, action flick. I mean, your heroes were in the military when when you open a newspaper a few times a day. Uh, what did you see? You saw representatives of figures on the battlefield. And the fact is, in the American Civil War, literally everyone in America is either related to or knows someone in the American military fighting in the Civil War. So out of that generation, you get this sort of enormous uh, groundswell and following for these big, larger-than-life characters. Uh, and one of those characters would have been George Armstrong Custer. Uh, he was He was young. Uh, he was brash. Uh, he really loved the attention that the position gave him. He was a cavalry commander, so he was already like uh, the fighter pilot, so to speak, of the 19th century. He wore these, you know, incredibly sort of bold. Uh, he made these incredibly bold statements with his outfits, you know, feathers in his caps and waxed mustache, medallions and buttons shined regularly. Uh, he pruned for crowds he loved to parade through cities so for for custer you know he really took to the limelight he really took to that attention but let's face it for the american people he was everything they wanted in 1865 so many people went home so many guys in the army um you know and we talked to, to brady about just how many people were in the army but we also asked him why does custer stay in he's got a chance to maybe go into politics he's on the lecture circuit uh, he's writing a lot of columns. He's, you know, just a huge celebrity. Why does he stay in this new downsized army to fight in the West? For Custer, though, he was a he was a man who was very young in terms of the uh, the high command of the Union Army, uh, and he was born into it. I mean, he was he really came into his own during the Civil War, uh, and when the war ended, like all of us, he has to make a decision. You know, what does he want to do with his life? Well, for him, the media is constantly around him on the battlefield. Anytime uh, reporters are in a union camp and he's there, they seek him out. Uh, he has fame. He has glory. Uh, he doesn't really have a plan B. I mean, there's talks of maybe he goes into to the lecture circuit game after his yeah. service. But he, he loves the game. I'm not going to say he loves battle because I don't, I don't think anyone really truly does. But I think he loves the structure and the and the platform the military gives him. So he stays on board. If you look at the history of American, Native American relations, there's a long list of treaties, land deals brokered by the by the Americans, previously broken brokered by the British, and they were almost all broken. The Americans broke pretty much every land treaty they ever had with the Native Americans, to the point where they could no longer trust them. 
It becomes an issue for Custer when we talk about the Treaty of Fort Laramie in the uh, the celebrated and important area to Native Americans of the Black Hills and the Dakotas. We talked to Brady Kreitzer about the Treaty of Fort Laramie in the late 1860s and its effect it would have later on this war that Custer would get himself into. Alex, you've, you've attested this. If you want to really research Indian wars in America, I mean, you have to start almost in the, in the 17th century and continue through really the beginning of the 20th because in, in so many ways, the faces change, the people change, but the battle is the same. And the battle is the fight over control of land and resources between people who had traditionally been on the land uh, for centuries uh, and this new sort of expanding superpower of the United States. So that is really what what the struggle is about. And one of the things that the United States really takes to doing because the British Empire have such a success with it is brokering these land deals and agreements with the native peoples, um, diplomacy on the frontier. And that's what we see with the Treaty of Fort Laramie. You know, the new theater of conflict, if you want to say that, because it continuously moves west, is now the region of the Dakotas, uh, Wyoming, what we consider to be the the American West today. Yeah, the sacred Black Hills uh, for the Plains people uh, have been really a centerpiece for their spiritual uh, and physical kind of presence. It's not just a, a special place for them, but in many ways, you know, it's almost where they align their being as they tend to move in different regions of the plains following migratory buffalo. It's always sort of, I guess, uh, a, a beacon of, of, of home for them. So it's very special. Custer and his men are in the Black Hills when they discover gold. And this is what really throws the treaty out the window for the American government. We talked to, to Brady Kreitzer about gold in the Black Hills and how it ends up being the end of the Treaty of Fort Laramie. In 1872 and 73, uh, one of the rumors that had been around for some time about the sacred Black Hills was that there was gold yeah. in the hills. And when that discovery is made, uh, it is it is a free-for-all. Um, th- there is absolutely no regard for the treaty. Prospectors flood the mountains. Uh, skirmishes break out between uh, some of the, um, some of the I don't want to call them renegade uh, Indian peoples, but the peoples who were not willing to sign away their their sacred birthright of the Black Hills. Uh, and, and this sort of gets us into this necessity for the U.S. Army to become a presence. It was a different type of war being fought in the Great Plains. It's not these giant, you know, set-piece battles that the Civil War that, that Custer had excelled in as a cavalry commander. It was a much different type of warfare with the, with the Plains Indians. We talked to Brady about the wars of the 1860s and 70s. You know, war, it's, people love to use the, the term savage um, to talk about Indian peoples, but the reality is, you know, war is savage. Uh, war is a terrible thing. And... When you when you go into a battle, say in a European style army versus another European style army, you have an expectation um, of what that of what that war will look like. But the Indian view of war is never never the same as as Europeans. I mean, you know, when you look at how Western civilization develops, 
uh, and how the Indian world developed. I mean, you're talking about two worlds that literally never came in contact with each other uh, in any meaningful way until the 15th century. So these are completely different versions of what what war and injustice and 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 success and failure look like. And you know, one of the things that Custer spoke about often in newspapers, that drove him crazy, was you know the Americans would line up in their typical battle formation they would have used against the French or the British or any number of the German states. That's how they were trained. Uh, and the Indians would just turn and flee if they are in a disadvantageous position. Mm-hmm. And that's something you would never, ever do in Europe. Uh, and certainly something that wasn't done in the Civil War, where most of these guys have earned their name or, or most, I think, Americans have a sense of what war is. So it was that sort of that sort of issue. It was an entirely different conception of what it was to fight ambushing and, and, and sneak attacks and what Americans would perceive as dirty tricks or low blows. I mean, this is. This is war for the Indians. This is their livelihood. They're not, you know, they would much rather win in a way that Americans view as dishonorably than lose with honor. I mean, they are fighting for their very existence here. So, you know, that's always been the story of, of native war against Europeans on this continent. Uh, and it's why, quite frankly, Europeans never really won many battles uh, because they just weren't equipped for that style of fighting. It's yeah. just, it's, it's too, it's like, you know, it's like if you put a football team and a soccer team on the same field <laughs> and told them to play a ball. It just they're both playing a, a you know a game, but it's not it's not the same game. We talked to Brady about Sitting Bull, the famous leader of the Lakota, a man who would ultimately get to know our second subject, Annie Oakley. He's the one who named her Little Miss Sure Shot when he later joined Buffalo Bill's Wild West tour. We'll talk about that famous Wild West uh, experience. But we asked Brady, who was Sitting Bull? And why did he bring so many warriors and, and different tribes around him in that summer of 1876? We mentioned earlier about, you know, a, a sort of a general distaste for the Treaty of Fort Laramie that, that many members of the, of the Cheyenne and Sioux Nation had. Uh, and one of the voices that really sort of spoke out against this was, was a man named Sitting Bull. Now, Sitting Bull was an older warrior. He had spent his life fighting. That's why he had a position of prominence. But he was one of these one of these leaders that said, listen, this is our land. We don't have to confine ourselves to a reservation. We didn't sign the treaty. Someone else signed the treaty uh, for us with no right to do it. So they didn't feel beholden to it. But Sitting Bull was one of these very prominent holy men that, that sort of came into it. Uh, and uh, he will you know, have this claim as time goes on uh, that he, you know, is one of these, again, not just a a holy warrior, if you want to say that, uh, but that he, you know, can communicate with the gods. Uh, So there's a very famous event in Montana at a place called Rosebud Creek. Uh, Just a few weeks before the battle, we're talking about where Sitting Bull says, I I want to commune with the spirits, with the great spirit. And he goes through a, a traditional sun dance uh, and this one goes very long because, you know, the spirits are just not coming through. He's not having his vision. And many warriors are dancing along with him and waiting patiently. And, you know, he begins to fall over from exhaustion, begins to bleed. And suddenly he has his vision. And his vision, he says, uh, he sees, you know, American soldiers falling from the sky like grasshoppers. He sees a great Indian victory and everyone sort of cheers. Uh, and then he says, but I have a very clear vision. 
uh, that we cannot in any way strip or spoil the, the dead after our victory, which is you know essential in an Indian war. You you want to get what you can in right. a trade based economy, uh, and this is so powerful of an image. This idea, this warning, and this victory that if you go to that site today, still. Uh, there is an artistic representation of it on a rock nearby. People wanted to enshrine this because for the Indians, this was their path forward. This was their future being told to them. So Sitting Bull was was this figure. And essentially what happens around him uh, is that those Indians who do not want to stay on the reservation, who want to remain free on the land they perceive to be their ancestral birthright, they begin to move with him. And they have sort of an enormous... Uh, you can almost call it migratory village. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the U.S. Army, this is your target, but it's never in the same place uh, mm. twice. Right. So you have to go into the Black Hills, you know, find where this moving encampment is. And, and that's essentially what brings Custer to his his destiny in 1876. As Custer and his men leave Fort Lincoln and head out looking for this village, seeking a battle, Custer makes a mistake of, I don't know if it's hubris, it certainly was a tactical mistake, but Custer splits his army. It's very confusing, it's it's frustrating why he would do something like this, not knowing the amount of warriors that he would be up against, and he would ultimately be greatly outnumbered at the Battle of Little Bighorn in June of 1876. We talked to Brady, what went into this decision to split his army? Even though they wear the same colors, they do not get along all the time. Benteen famously did not get along with Custer. One, uh, Benteen um, uh, believed that Custer was uh, too much bravado. He believed that some of the things that he did were for the wrong reasons. And two, Benteen actually was pretty critical in the press That's of, right. of Custer. Yeah. And it was and it was just like today, you know. I mean, if only if only he had Twitter, you know, but. Um, <laughs> He doesn't, but he's very – so these two don't like each other. And that's, that's, I think that's a bigger part of this than, than we like to think. We don't want to think battlefield decisions could be made so recklessly. Uh, but essentially, Custer will have a little less than 300 men, um, and he'll be marching you know, toward this encampment. He believes he knows where it is. Uh, the three groups, if you want to call them in the column, uh, were, of course, one led by Custer himself. This is all the 7th Cavalry. Uh, the second led by, by by Reno, and the fourth and the third by Benteen. Um, Custer will tell Reno, "Move on the encampment first. I'll be right behind you." And he's got uh, about a hundred men or so. They each yeah break it down to about a hundred men each in each of these columns, and then he tells Benteen to scout south, and Benteen sort of you know goes off on his own as he was told to do, but seems to make no interest in. in following orders or getting back together with Custer or playing by his rules anytime soon. Uh, so Major Reno goes in for the attack, um, and he very quickly realizes this is not a small encampment, uh, but it's actually very big. To understand this, you kind of have to go back a bit. We don't talk about this enough in the in the general understanding of the event, and it has a lot more to do with us than with the event itself. But a few years earlier, Custer... Uh, was was in a similar battle situation at a battle called the Washita. Yeah. And he attacked a much bigger Indian village than he realized. He got himself sort of in a, in a bit of a bind, and he should have been overwhelmed and overran. But the reason he survived, and one of the reasons he became sort of known as the Indian fighter after the Civil War, was because he took the women and children of the, of the, of the village hostage, and he put them in front of his line, and he basically, you know, dared the warriors around him 
you can attack us, but you have to go through your own women and children first. And the warriors of the Washita were not going to do that. And Custer literally walked out. I mean, he walked out unscathed. So one of the things that he was very, I guess, conscious of was, you know, if you capture innocents, if you capture women and children, they can be human shields. And whenever he came upon the village, that was what he told Reno. He looked in the village. He didn't think he saw any any warriors. They must have been out hunting buffalo, he believed. He said, let's go get the, the women and children, you know, hold them hostage and basically tell the warriors when they come back, you need to get back on the reservation or we're going to shoot these people. Right. So Reno charged the village believing he was going up against, you know, really uh, civilians. Uh, and what he didn't understand was that the warriors were all still in the village sleeping late. I don't know what they were doing the night before, but <laughs> apparently they were sleeping late and they charged out, overran him. Uh, and he basically turned tail and, and went back for another defensive position. And that's when everything kind of starts to fall apart because Custer's plan didn't really I- include having 1,500 to 2,000 warriors in the village at the time. The Battle of Little Bighorn has begun. It's June 25th, 1876. And George Custer and the 7th Cavalry have got themselves into a pickle. We talk with Brady Kreitzer about how this battle goes south so quickly against Major Reno and General George Custer. When Reno retreats, Custer is able to get to a piece of high ground and look over the village, and he sees all of this. He sees that whatever he believed to be the, the, the tactical situation on the ground was wrong. So Custer will send a runner right away to find Benteen, who's off wandering around in the south with his, with his 100 or so men. Uh, and, and we still have the letter. It basically says, get here as fast as you can. And and Benteen could have gotten there in a, in a, in a reasonable amount of time at, a, at like a trot. These are cavalrymen now, so they're on horseback. And uh, Benteen just, you know, moses his way toward the sound of gunfire. It's not clear why he does it. There is actually a congressional inquiry after this. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, it seems like he just wasn't interested in helping Custer. Maybe he thought Custer would be destroyed by the time he got there. Maybe he hoped Custer would be destroyed by the time he got there. Uh, we don't know, uh, but uh, he just he never arrived. He did reinforce Reno, who was who had fled the battle and had really mentally sort of come undone. He kind of fell apart uh, in the battle, uh, and they just stayed up there, leaving Custer really one one third of a of a, of a three column attack on his own. Custer charged the uh, the village. He tried to cross the river. With no success, um, he ordered his men off of his horses to establish a skirmish line. Uh, at the time, uh, Custer's men had Springfield carbine rifles, which were pretty powerful. You get about four or five shots, um, eh, maybe 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 more like nine or ten shots a minute off. These were these were real U.S. cavalrymen. They were really good at what they did. Um, but the Indians really had had no mercy for them. I mean, they charged them with. Uh, a, a Henry rifle, which if you don't know the difference, Henry rifles, not as powerful, not as good of a range, but Indians fought in close quarters anyway. Yeah. And they shot like literally double the rounds in a minute that the, that the Springfield carbine shot. So as Custer's men got off their horses, um, one of the things you see is uh, the women of the village who were going to be the supposed hostages running out toward the fire, waving blankets in the air. And they were doing it to scare Custer's horses away and it worked. So cavalrymen live on their horses. They live and die by their animals. And here come the women of the village, and they know how to scare a horse. And these horses flee. So cavalrymen are now on foot. You have uh, Indian warriors who outnumber them, you know, 
maybe 10 to 1, maybe maybe 15 to 1 uh, coming at them. And Custer's men, they really they, – they turn and they run. Uh, they, they're fighting along the way, but it's a, it's a scattered, confused fight to what we call Last Stand Hill. Custer's on the run. This battle, Little Bighorn, they, they begin putting their horses down, these shot horses, and, and building a little, you know, almost trench behind them to defend themselves behind the body of their, their own men and their own horses. In Indian word, Gaul, recalling this event, said, the battle took about as long as it takes a very hungry man to eat. It did all happen very quickly. Custer is pinned in on what's called the last stand hill. We talked to Brady about the end of the 7th Cavalry and George Armstrong Custer. It's uh, incredibly ferocious. We don't know the time exactly, Alex. Here's the the real problem we face with this, which is why I think the event is so 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 powerful. There were no American survivors from from Custer's group of men from his column. They were all destroyed. The Seventh Cavalry that was with with Custer, 268 men, uh, were all eliminated. Uh, about half of those men were immigrants from Ireland and other parts of Europe. Um, they were. They were strangers in a strange world. Um, they just they didn't survive. So for for centuries, not centuries, I should say that, but for decades, uh, for sure, you know, we kind of built a mythology around Custer, based on the fact that we don't know what happened. We know they were all dead. Uh, so we kind of let our minds fill in the story. And of course, you had Wild West shows uh, filling in the stories and the details and all these things. Never thinking at the time, based on where we were as a country, while there were a lot of survivors of the battle, they just weren't white Americans. Uh, they were all the Indians of the battle. And the Indians were very clear through their oral traditions what happened. And what they explained was basically essentially what the archaeology's borne out was that Custer's men were fleeing uh, and were eventually surrounded and over, overwhelmed on Last Stand Hill. Uh, and it wasn't really, honestly, until the 1950s and 1960s that we actually just started to look at these Indian testimonies as being somewhat serious. Uh, and because of battlefield archaeology and the ability to match shell casings to bullets fired, and incredible technology. Uh, I mean, archaeologists and historians have essentially pieced together this battle one step at a time. It was just small enough that, that you could pull it off. You could never do it with a Gettysburg or anything like that. Uh, but there was just small enough people you can basically trace the whole thing. Uh, and it ends up with Custer with uh, a bullet through his left side and, and the left side of his temple. no survivors in Custer's group. And the country is shocked when the news reaches the East. This is the centennial summer, the summer of 1876. And it's June 26th, you know, I mean, we're a week away from the centennial celebrations in Philadelphia, in New York, celebrating 100 years of the American Republic. And this is crushing news. One of our best armies has been smashed completely wiped off the map at the hands of a Native American band. We talked to Brady about the centennial summer and how this news hit the country hard. And here in 1876, finally America has something to cheer for, uh, a celebration of our centennial. 1876 was a, was a rough year. 
The U.S. Army had been occupying the American South after the Civil War uh, because Southern terrorist groups like the Ku Klux Klan and the Knights of the White Camellia were murdering African Americans or trying to vote. Um, it was it was it was chaotic. There were labor rebellions and riots all throughout the North, Pennsylvania and Ohio especially. So in 1876, you finally have something that can bring some shred of national unity, which is the centennial, 100 years from the signing of the Declaration of Independence, July 4th. This battle happens at the end of June. So by the time all of the sort of news gets out of what went down, uh, it's really hitting the American papers literally on the evening of July 3rd. Yeah. Uh, people are hearing that Custer, the great hero, you know, this this superstar, uh, this this maximum celebrity is 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 been totally destroyed. And you have to imagine what that also does to a lot of veterans and, and Americans who are there. I mean, the, the Civil War is over. This is the army that beat Robert E. Lee. You know, this is the army that won at Gettysburg. This is the army uh, that that defeated the Confederates. And this is how it ends for them. I mean, you know, 1,500 Indians, that's all it takes to totally wipe out the greatest army in the history of our country. It's just it's a really devastating blow to the, the American psyche. But it's it's coming at a time when we're pretty much at rock bottom anyway. George Armstrong Custer would become more famous in his death than in life. The Anheuser-Busch Company gave these bars with this giant painting of the last stand. It was basically every bar in the country that you'd go into and drink would have a picture, a painting, a very famous painting of Custer's last stand. And it grew and grew over the years. We talked to Brady about, you know, how did this myth of the last stand even begin? There was a congressional investigation into what happened. I mean... As much as people didn't want to face the facts, there was a fact-finding effort. As we know today, in the popular consciousness, a different narrative develops. And it might have been a coping mechanism for us to deal with the shock and terror of the whole thing. Uh, the fact that there were no American survivors also helps you know, kind of build that, yeah. that story. But America needed uh, you know, a hero uh, of some kind, maybe even a martyr for liberty – or westward expansion. I mean, there was just a lot going on that that Custer was the remedy for in, in after his death. He became a lot of different things. The men who fought there became a lot of different things. And, and Buffalo Bill will have these Wild West shows that will travel into the big cities like Carnival Acts and things like that. And um, The Last Stand is always replayed in these things. Everybody yeah. knew it's what it the was. the finale, and, I think. Yeah, and, and again, you know, what they got was what they wanted. And it wasn't, a last stand with, you know, uh, these people that didn't look like us or sound like us. It was a last stand of all American boys, you know, fighting for uh, fighting for manifest destiny, America's God-given right to take over the West. Some of the Indian survivors actually participated in these Wild West shows. It's just year after year, time after time, as you get further from the event, you know, the, the, the reality of it dissipates. People move on with their lives. And, it, you know, the, the story of it, uh, the truth of it, I guess, if that's the truth you want, the last stand is what you're left with. Uh, so, uh, again, at a time when America was still so badly beaten down by the Civil War and the legacy of slavery and the terrible things that followed, um, Custer maybe served uh, served as some sort of a, uh, a coping mechanism for, for us to deal with our problems. One of the factors of, of the Battle of Little Bighorn and Custer's death that's really not focused on enough is how it really was the end, the last stand of the Native Americans. More resources, more arms, and more ferocity, and even more aggressive, you know, an extinction policy in some cases. 
uh, a policy that stained this country and still stains this country, our, our treatment of Native Americans. But whatever our treatment was before the Battle of Little Bighorn, it got much worse for Native Americans following that embarrassment, the defeat, Pearl Harbor type defeat of the American Army in the 7th Cav. We talked to Brady Kreitzer about how this was the end, the end of the West as the Native American knew it. You know, we always say it's Custer's last stand, but the reality is, looking back, uh, we know it was really Sitting Bull's last stand. It was the Indians' last stand. Uh, they may have won the day, but the onslaught that was coming after them as a result of this was uh, really something they still haven't recovered from, quite frankly, as someone who visits Native communities and Native reservations. And, you know, you don't want to trace it directly back to Custer, but uh, I mean, it was, you know, it became official American policy uh, after the Little Bighorn to pursue what would today be an act of genocide against America's native, native peoples. Uh, one of the things that you have to understand about the, the people of the, of the plains, whether you're talking about the Arapaho or the Comanche in Texas, moving all the way to the Cheyenne and the Blackfoot into Canada, they all survived and subsisted off of the American buffalo. Uh, this animal that moved in an enormous herd of thousands of beasts. You know, one buffalo could feed a whole village. Uh, they were conservationists in that they picked off one buffalo at a time, and that's how they subsisted. They used every ounce of that animal for something. Uh, and it became U.S. policy. You know, the easiest way to, to kill all the Indians uh, is to kill all the buffalo. So we put out a bounty on the heads of any buffalo you could find. Uh, I think in 1870, there was something like 15 million buffalo on the Great Plains. By 1890, there was less than a thousand, wow. and that was that was a direct effort to exterminate a, an entire race of people by exterminating the one thing that they subsisted on for their existence, and it worked uh, with uh, horrendously spectacular results for the United States, and the West was essentially won. Ohio View the World has been brought to you by GoBus. Hit up RideGoBus.com, check out their cheap rates and routes all over the Buckeye State. Next time you need a ride around the state of Ohio, whether it's northwest or down the Queen City of Cincinnati, northeast Ohio or southeast Ohio and all points in between, go to RideGoBus.com. Thanks again to Brady Kreitzer for joining us. Uh, go check him out, uh, but he's been such a great guest for us and resource. He's so knowledgeable about American history. Jerry will join us in a little bit to talk a little more about Annie Oakley. Annie Oakley, Little Miss Shershot, by far the biggest female celebrity in Ohio, maybe ever. She's called Little Miss Shershot by Sitting Bull, the Lakota Sioux leader that we talked about. That was, you know, his it was his people that helped to wipe out General Custer in the Seventh Cav. Um, and it was Buffalo Bill Cody, his Wild West show, that brought Annie Oakley to prominence. Uh, Buffalo Bill, who knew Custer, had gone on hunting expeditions with him, had been a scout for his armies in the late 1860s. But Annie grew up in, in western Ohio, in a place called Dark County. We talked to our, our newest guest, Bill Eichenberger, the editor-in-chief of Echoes Magazine, the Ohio History Magazine. Uh, we talked to him about her childhood. She, she grows up so poor in western Ohio on the frontier. Uh, Dark County is in almost straight west out uh, I-70. Phoebe Ann Moses was born on August 13th, 1860, and she was born into a regular old family. She had uh, six brothers and sisters, and then at the age of six, 
her father died. Um, her mother remarried, and her stepfather died. And so the family was in dire financial straits um, for most of Annie's childhood. And then Annie was shipped by her mother to the Dark County Infirmary for the um, uh, elderly, orphaned, and mentally ill. She was in the infirmary from the age of eight or nine until uh, 13 or 14. So, but in the interim and all the times that she would have been home, she was always out in the fields with her uh, rifle. And um, she actually um, hunted to help you know, put food on the table for their family. But also she sold a lot of her, her game to uh, Katzenberger's grocery store in Greenville in Dark County. Then Katzenberger's would in turn sell that to restaurants in Cincinnati, which is, that's where the house Cincinnati found out about Annie. Annie lived a tough childhood. You know, some of those years where she was away at, at the asylum, she joined a foster family that she later called the Wolves. I don't know if she meant that because they were such terrible people um, or because that was their last name. She's not really clear about that. But she's basically sold into slave labor. Her family mother was tricked into letting these people care for her, um, and they treated her terribly. And she finally did make it back to her family, uses her her rifle to start making money for her family um, and supporting herself. We talk with Bill Eichenberger about how her life changes. A shooting competition outside of Cincinnati develops where she meets her future husband and great shooter, Frank Butler. A hotel owner in Cincinnati named um, uh, Jack Frost. And um, he was one of the hotels that took Annie's meat through through the Katzenberger's uh, pipeline. And so he knew that, hey, there's this little girl up in, in Dark County who is a hell of a shot. And um, uh, so he calls her down to do an exhibition, you know, kind of related to the hotel and just kind of a, sure. an event for the hotel. And she comes down, and who, who does she meet but Frank Butler? Um, uh, and they, sh they have a competition. Frank was a fairly renowned uh, sharpshooter, but during this uh, competition in Cincinnati, um, uh, Frank hit 24 out of 25 targets, and Annie hit 25 out of 25 targets. So, and if you if we get into the Barbara Stanwyck uh, Annie Oakley movie, if we talk about that a little later, uh, that's not how they portrayed it. And Barbara Stanwyck is Annie Oakley, and she's about to beat Frank. It's not. It's not. They didn't use his real name, so whatever the, the character was, but uh, she's about to beat him, and she misses on purpose to let him win. But that's not something Annie would do in real life. No one I talked to in researching this story, and nothing I've read in the several books that I read ever suggested that was anything Annie would ever do. No way. Yeah. <laughs> she was definitely going to win, and she would. she's going to whip those boys. Frank was already in the business, and eventually he would realize that Annie was the real talent. She was the one that could bring in the big bucks. Crowds loved her. But they had a really, really cool relationship, Frank Butler and Annie Oakley. And we talked with, uh, with Bill Eichenberger about Frank and Annie. Well, you know, for years, they and when they were a team, Frank took top billing, um, and Annie was kind of you know, this, the undercard and George, the dog, you know? And um, when when they get in 1885 to um, uh, to join the Buffalo Bill Wild West show, uh, it's been, it becomes clear of both Annie and, and Frank and to uh, Bill Cody 
that Annie's the star of the show. There's just no doubt. And um, so Frank, by all accounts, and again, I tried to, you try and find some him grousing at some point that he's lost the spotlight. He just absolutely is her number one fan, her biggest champion, and he manages her, um, and he knows that Annie is the draw. And so, um, uh, so they when they toured it initially, and here's another thing too that's interesting. And we, t- we talked about her persona um, and her public, you know, image. She had she always said until she died that she got married in 1876. But there are uh, court records that indicate that it, it appears she was officially married in um, uh, uh, six years later in 1882. And the theory is because of how protective she was of her uh, reputation, and, and and she was an upstanding Victorian woman. She never wore anything that would show even ankle when she was. So she did all of this unbelievable marksmanship in full dress and full Victorian yeah full yeah. Victorian dress and uh, so she uh, um, uh, she said so the theory goes that they, they were married in 76 because that otherwise it would have meant that she traveled with Frank unmarried unwed for six years so she just went back and post dated it I live in an area of Columbus called Grandview Heights uh, it's kind of smashed in between the Ohio State campus and downtown a great little neighborhood. It's where I grew up. It's where my office is now. It's where I live now. Uh, we bought a house here in 2017. We bring back Jerry DePizzo, our first three-time guest from the from the band OAR, to talk about something called the Cells Circus in Cellsville, a little circus town that was right here in Grandview in the 1870s, 1880s. And it's the Cells Brothers Circus that ends up discovering Annie Oakley. We talk with Jerry just about the Cellsville the Sells Brothers in in the importance of the circus and what a circus was like back in the 1870s and 1880s. They followed around the circus, and uh, through that, I think they got the great idea to put on their own circus. Right. So uh, in 1871, they put together a small traveling circus. Its opening was at the corner of uh, State and High in downtown Columbus. The, the Really, the first opportunity and a very unique opportunity for people all over the country to see something out of the ordinary, you know, to see a lion for the first time, to see an right. elephant for the first time, uh, monkeys, you name it. You know, it, this was really uh, Jack Hanna on wheels. Um, where was Sellsville? Because they, they had almost a... A home base, in, in right, just a couple blocks from where we're talking right now. No, I love it. It it, it was uh, it's it's basically in a great little plot, Grandview. I wish they would have held on to it. I'm sure they would have <laughs> done quite well. Uh, but it's uh, Old Tangy River Road to Virginia Ave, and then uh, King Ave to Fifth was right. the north and south border. So basically, the river over to like Kenny Road, and then King Avenue to Fifth Avenue was basically this little town that housed. Uh, uh, not only the equipment and things of the the circus, but like all of the folks that worked on it, all of the animals, you know, in the show, all of the animals that you needed to put on, you know, the back of house stuff in the show, like hundreds and hundreds of animals. And then also, I mean, you said, talk about vertically integrated. I mean, this was from grow to show. You know what I mean? Like they had, uh, you know, where Lennox is now, the movie theater and that whole plaza was, was the fields where they grew all of the food. We were talking with Jerry, and he started telling us really funny stories about how some of these animals would get loose. Tigers and lions and monkeys all over the Grandview area. Uh, we talked to Jerry just about you know what happened when, when these animals would get out of Southville and suddenly show up on the streets of Grandview Heights. 
that security is probably not that tight, <laughs> you know, in, in 1880-whatever. So, yeah, I would imagine uh, folks would see, like, you know, there's stories of seeing elephants on the Fifth Avenue Bridge, people oh having gosh. monkeys on the roofs and things like that, uh, elephants smashing through things, you know. And they had Annie, o- and they had Annie Oakley as well. They had and Annie Oakley. Eichenberger about the Sells Brothers Circus and how Annie Oakley comes to Columbus and tours the country with them and really becomes the Annie Oakley that we know now, the star. It's really born out of these years with the Sells Brothers. I would say that that was their apprenticeship. Well, especially Frank had done shows, so but it was really um, Oakley's apprenticeship. That's where she learned, and Frank taught her by all accounts, that he was the one responsible for showing her the ropes but so frank taught her and um and and the show became big enough even with cells that then word got out um because they were traveling and word got out that there was this remarkable woman um uh sharpshooter sharpshooter yeah and so um and that's they joined in, in 1985 and were with the uh, buffalo bills wild west for 16 years we asked Bill, what was it about Annie's shows that, that people found so just, you know, awe-inspiring? And people kept coming back again and again to watch her perform. What was an Annie Oakley show like? And so there's Annie standing two feet on top of a horse's back, rifle in hand, shooting, you know, skeet or whatever, you, what, a dummy target. Uh, there's another one. She's riding a bicycle. Again, full dress. All the way down to her, her, her ankles. Uh, a bicycle, no hands, you know, hand, look, mom, no hands, but shooting the rifle and shooting things out of the sky. Um, she, you know, did the thing with shooting behind her back, and um, and she learned all those um, uh, tricks with cells. And um, bef- but before, you know, by the time she got to the, uh, the Wild West show, she was an accomplished. I mean, she could. I mean, she could shoot anyhow. Buffalo Bill Cody was among the most famous people in the world. He had his Wild West show, which he took across the country and internationally. But he helped break um, Annie Oakley, who's one of her acts. Uh, they would always you know, do a reenactment of, of Custer's Last Stand. The Wild West show, how it became just so popular and how it really formulated the world's perception of the old Wild West. Uh, the first one that Cody did was in Chicago, and it was a play, um, pretty much like in a theater. And it wasn't until, and I don't think they used this word back then, but I'm going to use it now, and that's, they did reenactments, and they found out that that was a huge draw. So, so the Wild West shows were renowned for their pageantry and their color and the excitement of, and, and uh, I, I would love to have seen yeah me too uh the, the a beginning of one of the sh- they did um a tribute to horse riders and so cowboys would ride out with their buckskins and american indians would ride out in their full you know full war regalia and headdress and um but they went so far as to embrace all horse culture across the globe so they had mongols and they had um uh, Georgians from from uh, the area of Russia, and um, uh, um, people you know from 
who had all different kind of cultures. So, and they were all in their native dress. They were all riding the kind of horses that they had wherever they came from, because um, you know the, the horses varied pretty widely, even amongst American Indian tribes. The horses, uh, you know, obviously the Comanche are well known for um, the Mustangs that they rode and rode to perfection. But um, but I would have loved to see that. It would the, the color, the the drama, the pageantry, and then they would reenact. Buffalo Bill would reenact uh, um, an incident at some remote place where he is he alleged or he said he had scalped a Cheyenne warrior. Yeah, yellow knife. I yes. Think. Yeah. And um, so does that? Did that happen? We don't know. Um, we have to take his word for it. Well, a, a, as the years went on, um, they be, they incorporated um, the Custer's Last Stand as a reenactment, um, and they had uh, they had twenty. And Sitting Bull was, of course, a very famous uh, member of the troupe, um, uh, and I should say that C- Cody, um, uh, uh, far from exploiting the American Indians, really admired them, um, fought for their civil rights, and. Um, insisted that Sitting Bull get all of the same equal treatment as anyone else on the, on the, on the, on the, in the troop. And so he, they, he sold out the shows in Chicago, but they saw very quickly that that wasn't going to be what was going to be a draw in, in all across the country and throughout the world, as it turned out. Annie ended up in 14 different countries um, by the time she was done touring with them. Um, so <clears throat> it turned more from the stage to the circus or, or more of an outdoor venue. Annie rockets to superstardom on the backs of, of the Wild West going to England. In 1887, they go to London, um, perform a series of shows in and around England uh, for the Queen Victoria's Jubilee, her 50th anniversary. She meets Queen Victoria, probably the most famous person in the world in the 19th century. She meets Prince Edward uh, and actually says hello to his wife first, saying that in America, it's ladies first, uh, breaking etiquette there. But the English loved her. You know, she was the first woman to shoot, you know, at the Wimbledon Gun Club, and, and she beats the men. Um, she makes tours in, in France. She goes to the, you know, the World's Fair in, in France when they unveiled the Eiffel Tower. Uh, we talked to Bill just about these, these tours in Europe and how it really did lead Annie to becoming the most famous woman in Ohio history. Northwestern Europeans, in particular, but really all the way into the. Um, uh, um, Central Europe, people were just absolutely, and still are to this day, fascinated with the American West. So that it was as exotic as exotic. But they were just revered. I just have to say that the Wild West and uh, American Indians and cowboys and um, the, 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 it was really hyper romanticized. Um, it, you know, of course, it wasn't anything like if, you know, real history, but it was an approximation where it was, it was actually myth-making. And, and that's really what it was, is that um, they were creating a myth about the American West and retelling a story um, that didn't happen the way they said it happened. Well, one of the famous stories is that she shot the cigar ash out of uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II's uh, cigar while, while he held it in his hands. She, in the later years, she shot an apple off her dog Dave's head in every show. So it was like the William Tell thing. Yeah, the tours were remarkable. Um, they had initially planned uh, a short run in Paris that ended up being six months long. And then they toured other places in France, Spain, um, and Italy. Uh, but she she had a way about her 
you know, you're asking why, um, you know, leaders, you know, world leaders, kings and queens and, you know, uh, prime ministers, you know, would, would fall in love with her. She was always completely herself. She was a paragon of Victorian virtue. She was humble. No, but nobody worked harder than she did. We can talk about her athletic ability, but, um, uh, and, and people just liked to meet her. They just loved her. Uh, and she was as adored, and maybe in a different way, in a more, a more deeper connection, um, by um, uh, the youth in America. Annie and, and Bill had in common with them today. Um, but they were really the era's, the country's first, you know, superstars. Just bigger than life itself. And that was something that really, and, and really kind of, in a way, were really uh, responsible for helping to invent the entertainment industry in in America. American showbiz. Yeah, absolutely. And but what what's more showbiz than that kind of that kind of show that they were putting on? I love that story of Annie shooting the the cigar out of the the hand of Kaiser Wilhelm II. She used to joke during World War One that if her aim had been off that day, that maybe the entire World War could have been averted. That she had it in her hands to change history. Uh, she had just missed that shot on purpose. But getting to know Annie was difficult. You know, Bill wrote an article in, in Echoes magazine about Annie Oakley, which is what led us to talk to him. And he did all the research, and I've read books about Annie Oakley. Nobody really knew her. She kept that, you know, this perception or public perception of the demure, um, you know, entertainer. But nobody really knew her privately. We talked to Bill about trying to get to know Annie Oakley. There's a plethora of information about her if all you care about is her public persona and her public life. But if you want to know who she was, how she ticked, then that's the, the, the nut that's very, very hard to crack. In fact, no one's done it yet that I can tell. Uh, there is a, there's a biography that came out um, uh, right after uh, yeah. she passed in the 1920s and, uh, and then it was reissued in the 40s and it has the most um, contemporaneous interviews with people that actually knew her but even there then it's hard to tell because it's a lot of anecdotes and were the stories accurate or did she tell these other people what she wanted them to spread but she was really meticulous uh, almost maniacal about protecting her public persona that carefully crafted narrative about Annie Oakley uh, comes under fire. Suddenly a story appears in all the papers saying that Annie Oakley was arrested, caught stealing. She was trying to, to steal things to get money to buy cocaine. It's completely out of character, but it wasn't her. And Annie, we talked to Bill about Annie's crusade against this libel, and she attacks these newspapers to try and reclaim her image, and she was successful. Uh, there was a woman uh, in Chicago named Maud Fontanella. She had been a cabaret dancer for one of the Wild West shows, not, not uh, I don't think Buffalo Bills. She was arrested in um, Chicago for theft. And the headlines uh, the next day read, Famous Woman Crackshot Steals to Secure Cocaine. Yeah. And Maud Fontanella had just simply told the police she was Annie Oakley. And evidently it was believable enough that the police didn't check out her story. <laughs> Neither did the reporters, who I'm sure at this this is the height of the Hearst newspaper empire, and they're always looking for a scoop, and yellow journalism was really in full flight. And um, uh, 
it ends up being picked up by the wire service and running in 55 newspapers. Yeah. It's annoying to me that this was done to Annie. The gr- but it has a great ending, and that is that she sued all 55 newspapers and and won st- out and straight out or settled in 54 of them. So she really did reclaim her reputation, her persona, and uh, and it was and she that that just shows you she 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 took on the people who had who said that falsehood about her and she beat them. Annie retired from the Buffalo Bills Wild West show after 16 years. She would do some other shows on the side. She was, you know, there was a play about her that she played herself. Uh, and obviously, there were lady, later, you know, musicals like Annie Get Your Gun and a movie like we talked about with Barbara Stanwyck called Annie Oakley. But she really retires um, and decides that she wants to be buried in Dark County. She lives, you know, in North Carolina and all over the country, but ultimately she wants to come home. We talked to Bill just what was it about Dark County, Ohio that's still called to the most famous woman in Ohio history. And I, and I have a feeling it has more to do with the land than it did experiences with other people in Dark County. because But that was her neck of the woods. That's where she grew up. That's where she taught herself to shoot. And she was adamant. And she, she said really beautifully, I thought poignantly, um, that uh, 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 talking about um, after traveling through 14 foreign countries and appearing uh, before all the royalty and nobility, I have only one wish today. This is near the end of her life. That is when my eyes are closed in death, that they will bear me back in that quiet little farmland where I was born. They love her. I mean, she's still, like you say, Dark, you know, Dark County's fam- most famous export. But she loved them and the place. And so, uh, and you can actually go and see her. Uh, her gravestone is in Brock Cemetery um, in York Township in Dark County. Thanks so much to Bill Eichenberger for joining us. I knew so little about Annie Oakley um, and, and before we did the research. And again, his article from, from Echoes Magazine last year is really good stuff. Uh, really great pictures and, and a real explanation. He goes to the Garst Museum, which is out in, in Dark County in Greenville. Really cool place uh, that you need to go see. It's not just an Annie Oakley Museum. It's got all kinds of stuff. It's really weird, uh, really weird little museum, Bill said. Uh, and he's been out there. And there's a feature, again, the Garst Museum in Greenville. Go check it out for a little weird Ohio history and, and to, to learn even more. They got everything from Annie Oakley, their, their native girl. Uh, we talked to Bill just one last time just about what was it about Annie Oakley that, you know, a girl who's just doing trick shots in a circus, how did she become so famous? What was it about her that made her Little Miss Sure Shot and everyone's favorite female embodiment? of the Wild West. Annie was to the boys who, who fell in love with her and there were, they were legion, but then he qualified it by saying she was petite, well-built, uh, nearly an Olympic athlete, but she was also flirtatious with her audiences. And yet she was in other ways exceptionally demure and modest. Um, she never showed her ankles in public. She, but So she was, for these boys, and this is, it's at the very beginning of entertainment, she was a safe object of desire because she was obviously unattainable, but she was a notion of something that 
of of a real strong woman that might be yeah. interesting and someone that you you would enjoy spending time but with. But still with that Victorian you know aspect to it. Yeah, but now on the other hand, and, and when he talked about the Olympic athlete, he said that she was a real uh, hero to her female fans, a real role model that uh, suggested that women aren't just this or that, that they can do whatever they want. They can beat men. book recommendation for the final episode of season three it's got to be custer's trials by tj styles pulitzer prize winner uh just an amazing book and it really talks about everything in his life right up until his death gives you such a an insight into this complicated man he pulls no punches you know custer was certainly no saint he's incredibly objectionable as really the man of his time in, in that period of american history but read tj styles we talked to our first guest Jason Lucas, uh, who also read and loved that book, uh, just pulled a quote really about Custer in his early life uh, and his success in the Civil War and how all that really was led him to the disaster that was the Battle of Little Bighorn. So Stiles writes about Custer in a summary that is perfect, that I could not come up with. Uh, I'm going to just read it for you. Custer was 25 years old. He held the second highest rank in the Army. He killed men. He'd won battles. He was a celebrity. His success taught him many lessons about himself and about the world. And he would spend the rest of his life learning that they were all wrong. That'll do it. Thanks so much to our guest, Jason Lucas. Uh, also to Bill Eichenberger, the editor-in-chief of Echoes Magazine. Thanks for letting us... Um, talk to you about Annie Oakley and of course the Brady Kreitzer the great uh, podcaster check out his original podcast Wartime and also go to allthingsliberty.com uh, to check out his new podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution uh, and that's called Dispatches look it up on iTunes uh, and thanks to Aaron Wingfield and of course Jerry DePizzo. Um have fun on your tour this summer you can see him again all over the country but in Dayton, Toledo and Cleveland as well in June so go check that out at oarlive.com. Uh, we will be back in August, guys. Uh, this summer, we're always we've got a couple of uh, charity events we do at Nightlight Six One Four, where we, if you want to be involved with that, you just pour beer and wine with with me and uh, some friends of mine, and it's an outdoor movie series in Columbus. We always have volunteers who who email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. You get a free T-shirt, and we're outside in downtown Columbus pouring beer and watching movies. Uh, it's a couple times this summer you can do that. Again, vote for us in the Columbus Podcast Awards. Uh, it starts May 1st. Find Ohio V. The World has been nominated. It's one of Columbus's best podcasts. We'd love to have your vote. Follow us on Instagram, Ohio V. The World Podcast. Uh, we're on Twitter at Ohio V. The World. Follow Jerry also, Jerry DePizzo at Jerry DePizzo uh, on Twitter. Really good follow. He's got a bunch of followers, but uh, he's going to be on tour this summer, and that's always going to be a good feed to check out. And thanks to Jerry for joining us. Um, guys, like I said, we love doing this show. We're going to be back for season four. Season five is going to be about the Ohio presidents as we gear up to the 2020 election. Um, a lot of stuff in the works. So we really, really appreciate it. Follow us, rate and review the show. Um, this is our longest episode because we just didn't want to say goodbye to you guys. We had so much fun doing it. Um, and again, I thought season three really, really was was well done and had some great episodes and it's really reflected 
and the number of listeners. Uh, thanks again to our friends at GoBus. You can go to RideGoBus.com for their cheap rates and routes. Um, they were so helpful, Matt and everybody. Thank you over there. And it is, it's a great way to travel the country or travel Ohio. Um, Wi-Fi, reclining seats, bathrooms, I mean, good stuff. Not the Greyhound bus and Spartan existence that you might be used to on a bus. So check them out again at RideGoBus.com. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you in August for Season 4 of Ohio V. The World. Ohio V. The World is brought to you by GoBus. Hit up RideGoBus.com and all Ohio bus service. Whether you're going from Cleveland to Cincinnati or the $10 trip from Athens to Columbus, you can recline in their comfy chairs or download our newest episode using their free onboard Wi-Fi. GoBus is the safest and classiest way to travel the Buckeye State. So make sure you check out RideGoBus.com for their routes and their cheap rates that'll get any Ohioan where they need to go in style. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.